0: Hello and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw and I am thrilled to have a great show for you today. We're going to address with an amazing guest one of the big conundrums in I think surgical ICU practice, maybe all ICU practice, which is the question of acute kidney injury in the ICU. What do we know about it? What do we do with it? And we have with us none other than a nephrologist who focuses on this. I have Dr. Samir Gautam, who is an assistant professor of medicine and nephrology. He's also the director for acute dialysis services and CRRT here at Johns Hopkins, and he is going to help us understand this better. Samir, thanks so much for coming on the show.
1: Thank you, Zeb. Thanks for having me. I'm I'm excited.
0: So let's start by just tell the audience a little bit about you. What is your, you know, I, I already said you you run the acute dialysis and CRT services. You know, what does your day look like? How much of it is managing that? How much of it is consult or research? You know, what is what does your career look like these days?
1: I'm a clinical uh, nephrologist. So I, most of the, my activities are surrounded around uh, clinical activities, and 20 weeks a year, 18-20 weeks a year, I'm in patient consults, and among that. I primarily focus on uh, acute uh, nephrology. Uh, we have three teams in our services, consult teams. Team A involves uh, ICU nephrology; that's where I focus on. And I want to focus. I'm focusing on my clinical research also on clinical uh, nephrology. And then remaining in chronic uh, chronic nephrology. And then security clinic, I go half to a week of security clinic, and then outpatient dialysis. And also, I ch- I champion on a home hemodialysis also, and I go to one of the units, one of our units here in uh, Baltimore uh, to do home hemodialysis and peritoneal dialysis, and then uh, mostly staffing the fellows and education. And most of the education, I focus on acute kidney injury and in ICU and CRT uh, mechanics.
0: Great. Well, this is great, and I think will be really helpful for people. So let's dive right in. Let's define acute kidney injury. What What does that mean? How do we define it?
1: I think that's a great question. And uh, acute kidney injury. Uh, uh, my background: I was in private practice before I came here. As the reason I'm saying is, still in a community, there is still no clear understanding of acute kidney injury and uh, confusing with acute renal failure. Uh, before 2000, uh, it used to be used interchangeably: acute renal failure, acute tubular injury. And uh, because of that, there is no straight for definition. In 2000, 2004, people. Uh, Came, uh, came up together and came up with a definition uh, called rifle criteria, and that's when they came with acute kidney injury definition. And that criteria had doubling of the creatinine within uh, over a period of seven days as a uh, risk uh, criteria, and then uh, tripling, d- tripling, and also creatinine more than four according to the staging. That that's how they staged. And it did not. Uh, and between 2004 and seven, there was a study which showed that. Even minuscule rise in creatinine up to 0.3 within first 48 hours of presentation had increased uh, clinical significance with increased mortality and morbidity and uh, increased hospital stay in this patient. So that's why they want to uh, change the definition with, for AKI with rise in creatinine of 0.3 in first 24 hours. Then there was a subset of patients who who did not rise rise uh, there there are no there was not rise in 0.3 but there was uh, some rise over the period of seven days, a uh, doubling. So then in 2012, we have a standard def- definition of 0.3 milligrams per liter rise in 48 hours, or uh, doubling of creatinine for seven days of hospitalization. That's acute kidney injury. Yeah.
0: Okay, so we now define it as, as since 2012, as you said, as either a 0.3 rise in 48 hours or a doubling over seven days.
1: Yes, that's a creatinine-based criteria. And then there's a urine output-based criteria, also like decrease in urine output of 0.5 ms per kilogram over six hours. That's uh, that's also a urine output criteria, and we all know that hump. Except in ICU setting, patient doesn't get good recording of the urine output, and there's it's no good data. That's why it's more creatinine-based data. is uh, definition is more uh, talked about, but it's equally important. And even studies have shown that even transient oliguria, less than three hours of decreasing output also has uh, shown to have poor outcomes on these patients.
0: Yeah. Interesting. Now, is there any, you know, I always tell my residents, you know, you probably sleep eight hours at night and don't make any urine. (laughs) Right. And that's because uh, theoretically, you know, that's what you're supposed to do. And you haven't had a ton of, of things to drink right before bed. And so your, your kidneys are doing what they're supposed to do. Um, so, you know, if you had a patient who wasn't getting much in but and so their, their urine output fell, you know, that would we look more at their creatinine and say, okay, well, maybe they're not making urine because they're not, you know, getting a lot of fluid in as opposed to because it's in it's injury if their creatinine didn't rise?
1: I think uh, there is a catch to to that discussion. I mean, there are some subsets of patients, even if they don't increase their creatinine uh, like for example, people who have very poor muscle mass or uh, very poor osmolar intake, they may not have a rise in creatinine as expected. You now there are some set of uh, patients that can uh, delay the diagnosis of AKI, and there has been that's on there has ongoing research on uh, sub classifications of these patients. It's like, is there any biomarker changes associated with the injury? It's not a prime time for the clinical use, but in European uh, countries they are using all these uh, different. Uh, sets a biomarker uh, like nephrochex and uh, IGF beta protein and TMP2 as an example to to see if there's a real injury on these patients, although he did not have a rise in creatinine or someone who went to marathon, uh, had a lot of sweating, but the rise in creatinine, but there was no change in the structure, uh, damaging markers. Still, that's a hot uh, discussion in the nephrology world these days. And Yeah.
0: Great. Yeah, I remember working with a guy, a wonderful attending named Mike Schlipek, when I was a medical student at UCSF, and he, this was back probably in 2007 or 8, and he was telling me about this thing, cystatin C, that he was studying. And uh, I, there was recently, he had a paper in the New England Journal recently about this, right? So I think it's, um, that is one of those biomarkers, right? Cystatin C that may be a better indicator than creatinine of of kidney injury.
1: Yes, I think uh, some patients, even in the clinic, I get uh, patients who are like musculature, they have uh, creatinine, is made one of the metabolism of the muscle, uh, and it's reflective of the muscle mass. So people who don't have muscle, it gets uh, fairly, uh, it gets, uh, creatinine doesn't rise on these uh, rises, but people who don't have muscle mass or sarcopenic patients, they may not have rise creatinine. In those instances, uh, uh is a better biomarker, yeah.
0: Great. All right. So we've talked about the definition. Let's talk about different causes of AKI uh, because, you know, I think what happens a lot is uh, in the ICU, we have a patient and their creatinine is going up. Okay. Now for me, cause I do surgical critical care, this is usually postoperatively, but it could be someone, you know, I think in any, in any setting and the creatinine is going up and we think, okay, you know, and, and what we're often taught, I think is first think about pre-renal versus intra-renal, Right. But let us let me let you decide. How do you approach this? How do you approach thinking about the potential causes of a rise in
1: creatinine? Uh, 50% of uh, patients who have AKI in hospital, in a broad perspective, 20% of patients who get admitted get AKI. Uh, that's in a broad uh, sense. But among those, 50% of patients who get AKI uh, who are hospitalized in hospital is due to acute table injury. And then after that, is when they're in hospital, like acute interest in nephritis, that's most one of the under-recognized uh, uh, cause of AKI. And then after, there's a post-obstructive. Those are three main causes. And, and GN, it panics a lot of residents and fellows when, uh, like whenever there's a creatinine rise. But it's very minuscule proportion of patients who get AKI from a GN in the hospitalized patient. Most common is acute tubular injury And it can when be like
0: GN, that's glomerular nephritis.
1: Glomerulonephritis. nephritis.
0: Okay. And acute so, kidney
1: injury uh, uh, is mostly like it. It has two subsets: like ischemic and post-toxic uh, acute kidney injury. And in the hospital, mostly in the surgical setting, is like most likely it's like ischemic ATM or
0: acute okay. Yeah. Now, it let, so when we're saying ischemic ATM, we're thinking damage to the kidney itself from, let's say, hypotension in the OR or you know any any source of ischemia to the kidney. Yes. And this is different than when we say prerenal, because in a way, prerenal can, you know, if you're prerenal long enough, you can lead to, of course, ischemia to the kidney, right?
1: That's correct, yeah.
0: But when we think prerenal, what we mean is you're just hypovolemic, right? You're not getting enough flow to the kidney to make urine. Uh,
1: Decrease uh, perfusion to the kidneys. Uh, I, I just wanted to make a distinction. People who may be good volume also. Uh, the st- some like like for example, or uh, liver patients, they may have good volume overall, but they may not perfusing adequately to the patients. So those are pre-renal, I would say.
0: Okay. Yeah. So pre-renal is a decrease in perfusion to the kidney. And initially, that is not causing damage to the kidney. So if you just increase perfusion, you're going to be back to making normal urine and clearing your creatinine, right?
1: Yes. And those are the subsets of patients who who, ha- who they have looked at in the studies also when they have looked at structural biomarkers. Those kind of patients, they don't have change in the biomarker. so they're real. There's in real, there's no real damage to the kidney. So as soon as you bring it down, it's normal. So yeah.
0: Okay. So is it accurate? You said about fifty percent of AKI is from ATN,
1: could, yes. which
0: is acute tubular necrosis, right? Mm-hmm. So does that suggest that the other fifty percent, or how, how, what percent do we think is pre-renal?
1: Twenty percent.
0: Okay so about 20%. So the the minority. So most of the time because I think it's I think we often blame it on prerenal, right? Yes. Um, but it sounds like that's the relative minority. So most of the time it's actually uh, the majority of, of of the of the options is going to be ATN. So yes. it's either ATN, you said a, a small amount of the time it might be glomerulin nephritis. What uh, yeah, what and about and the other? The a
1: number in after ATN would be like prerenal and AIN and then GN is very very low. Yeah. What was after pre renal? AI, you said? Acute interstitial nephritis. That's like oh, drug allergic. Yeah.
0: Gotcha. Okay. And we okay.
1: see a fair number of patients uh, in our hospital also. Yeah.
0: So, how do you teach people to go about figuring out which one it is?
1: So, first is a good history and example, and history and examination. And, uh, Mostly examination, it may not show a lot. Mostly history, like what, where they have been, how, what was the fluid loss, especially the surgical setting, uh, bleeding, diarrhea, uh, PO, uh, intakes. I mean, think that helps a lot. And then after that, once you determine, and then plus, once you determine by the clinical exam, the patient is you want to make, then best thing is to evaluate the urine output. Urine output is the best biomarker for uh, AKI. And then, uh, look at the drug medication. That's one of my pet pieces. Look at the medication of the patients. Like, have they been exposed to vancomycin? That's one of the common ones. And then amino and, uh, sulfonal are uh, commonly like cephalosporins, penicillin. Look at the drug, drugs or amino levels. And after that, I, I go and look in the microscope and how does the urine look like? If it is bland, then it's mostly hemodynamic, but frequently we see like granular materials or muddy brown cast and it's poor man's kidney biopsy and it's easy We can just take the urine and look at it go to the osler building or one of the labs and look in the microscope the 5 minute diagnosis and once you see a lot of muddy brown cast then that's diagnostic for acute tubular injury
0: okay so yeah the um those brown casts right you see this on uh, what are they called not not just brown what was the word uh... muddy brown cast muddy brown cast right so the muddy brown casts you see this on tests all the time muddy brown casts are are they diagnostic of atn or just suggestive
1: it's diagnostic plus okay. in addition to the muddy brown cast you see something called ischemic cell shedding of the renal tubular epithelial cells that also uh, can be there and if if there are renal tubular epithelial cells or granular or muddy brown cast that's diagnostic of acute tubular injury
0: Okay. So if you see that, then you've got your answer. This is ATN, probably from, if it's surgical, probably from some hypotension in the OR, right? Decreased perfusion. Um, is that true also of, you know, non-surgical patients that it's it's probably from some hypotension at some point? Or, you know, what, what do we think the main causes of ATN are when it's ATN?
1: I mean, uh, septic patients are different subsets of patients. So patients who have sepsis, uh, in the past, the thought was, okay, they become hypoperfusion to the kidneys. But now we know it's just a disproportionate blood flow to the kidney and local, uh, local regional inflammation around the kidneys and blood circulation. Even though there is no decrease, the patient has maintained a good blood pressure. Uh, when they have septic like White Count, because of inflammatory modulation, also people the patient can get kidney injury and septic AKI is different. But still, in that pathway, also people can get equitable injury and AKI.
0: Okay. So you said you're going to you got a patient, the creatinine's going up. First thing you're going to do is look at the urine output. And obviously if that's So let's go back to that for a second. If it's low, then obviously that suggests there's a problem, like you said that's a a good biomarker. What if it's not low? Then where does that point you? If you say, "Oh, the creatinine's going up, but they're making, you know, robust urine." What does that make you think of?
1: Still, uh, some form of AKI, actually, vancomycin in this AKI, they are really non-oliguric AKI and have acute injury. Uh, they have somewhat better prognosis than the other oliguric AKI. And in 2012, uh, something came up like furosemide stress test. I don't know if you have heard that or not. Yeah, uh, it's, it. Uh, the way it works is whatever furosemide you, you give to the patients or loop diaries, it uh, from the circulation, it goes to the proximal tubule. It gets secreted to the proximal tubule. In the tubular lumen, it goes to the loop of Henle, and then that's where it blocks and causes diuresis to the patient. Uh, that tells us there's a lot of the highway. It's a highway that it takes, and based on that, if there's kidney damage, based on extent of kidney damage, the patient's response to furosemide varies. So that's when they came up with the prognostication of these patients, so like oliguric patient who have been well resuscitated. If you give them like one milligrams per kilogram dosing of Lasix or furosemide naïve patients and or if they have been in furosemide in the past 1.5 milligrams per kilograms of furosemide if you give them and if they have robust response of more than 200 mLs in first two hours then that's a good prognostication of these patients okay they're going to do well people who make less than that they like likely progress from stage one to stage two to stage three with severe AKI or even you can prognosticate. You get like it may, this patient is heading to our so that's indirect or where uh, somewhere in the middle that can give you an idea how this person is going to do
0: yeah okay so you, you let's back up a sec so you said that if they're making robust urine that's going to push you more toward thinking about AIN maybe from things like vancomycin or aminoglycoside some drug-induced injury where they can still have robust urine output but have injury if they're oligoric then you can do this Lasix challenge. And, and, and this I love, and we're going to talk about this in a minute, but just to repeat, mm-hmm. the way you do this is if they're Lasix naive, one mig per kg, so you're talking about 100-kilo patients, you might give 100 milligrams of Lasix. If they're not, if they're on Lasix or have been on it, you might give them up to 1.5. So now you're talking about 150 milligrams for a uh, 80 uh, for 100-kilo patient. Um, and you're looking for them to make 200 mLs of urine in two hours. And if they yeah. do that or more, obviously, then that's a good prognostic sign. Now, of course, the question that everyone's going to say because I get this I do this and I get it all the time. You mean you're going to give a big dose of Lasix to this person with an AKI but Lasix is nephrotoxic. You're going to hurt the kidney, right? So, what's your response to that?
1: I think I'm with you on that. It doesn't hurt. It's so who is the patient and what context they are giving, you know? It, uh, as I said when I started about Lasix, it is like appropriately resuscitated patient, you know. Uh, a patient who came to the ED and has a, a rising creatinine, if you give lasix, that's the wrong thing to do. But a patient who has been staying in your surgical ICU for four, or five days, has been well resuscitated, now has a rising creatinine, and then this is the right time to do lasix. The way I see, lasix doesn't uh, damage the kidney directly. The only damage you see is from the volume uh, fluid and uh, fluid electrolyte balance. You know, if you make him too negative, that's different. But LASIK doesn't cause damage to the kidney. That's my perception.
0: I love it. I couldn't agree more. I think this is very clear. Um, And, you know, if you make... If you give a patient 100 of LASIKs and they don't make any urine and then you give them 200 and they don't make any urine and then you give them 300, right? At some point, you're obviously going to make them pre-renal and they're going to have kidney damage damage in that. But if you give a patient LASIKs and and they respond well, they've Mm -hmm. obviously got the volume to give. And these days... We've got the ability to use a bedside echo. We can take a look and see what their intravascular volume looks like. If we know that they have robust intravascular volume, we're not really worried about making them dry, right? And like you said, if we know we've resuscitated them, that's very different than a patient who might be very dry. And even then, I think if you give Lasix to a patient who's very dry, nothing's going to happen, right? They're not going to urinate. And then you know that that wasn't the right answer. Um what do you think about giving? Um, so often, if we're really, you know, want to make somebody, um, you know, make urine, they're not making it. Let's say maybe they're in danger of getting reintubated because they're so volume overloaded, and you know, we, we're we're trying to stave off dialysis, and we really want to try to see will their kidneys work. We give them maybe a big dose of Lasix and some thiazide like Metolazone. Do you think that's a good strategy? What do you think about that?
1: That's excellent strategy, and I think. uh, uh not even metallogen, you can block the tubule uh, in different uh, sectors in the uh, kidneys uh, or kidney tubules and lasix and metallogen is a good combination. I would not say metallogen in particular. Any any thiazide diuretics like chlorthiazide or ICTG, and whatever downstream sodium reabsorption happens in the distal tubule, it can block that also and augment the diuresis. I'm I'm all for it. Yeah.
0: Great. Now, everyone, I, I always forget this, but people say that there's a, a better order, right? That it's either better to give them a, the thiazide first and then the furosemide or the other way around. Do you is, do you have a preference?
1: Not really. I know people uh, historically used to do like giving metal 30 minutes before a Lasix, uh, but whenever you can give. I think the Lasix has a half-life of six hours. Metal has a half-life of 24 to 48 hours. It'll hang around. So.
0: Right. Okay, great. So, if you if you want to do it you do the you know the, you do the uh thiazide first but probably doesn't matter give them both. Yeah. Yes. Okay. I love it, no, that's I my, it yeah. yeah, that's my approach too. Okay. So safe and and effective to do this both from a trying to make them make urine and maybe avoid dialysis so turning a oliguric AKI into a non-oliguric AKI but also um you know maybe giving you some prognostic information if they respond to that Lasix challenge that's really helpful in terms of prognostication is that right yes that's correct okay so
1: but having said that uh if the if the patient making the changing adding the volume to the taking off the volume to the patients from volume standpoint only for kidney recovery it doesn't change at all kidney will recover the way it was damaged so that's it doesn't change but at least you would have avoided one intervention on that patient right dialysis yeah
0: now, what role, if any, does calculating a phena have? Now, I know you can't do a phena, uh, and that's a fractional excretion of sodium. Um, you know, I know you can't do it if you're giving Lasix. You can do a fractional excretion of urea. But, you know, what role, if any, does that have in trying to figure out what's going on with a patient?
1: I don't use it. Uh, Fina, I mean, we, when I was a fellow, we used to use it extensively, but it's 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 determined, It's based on multiple factors of the patient's uh, amount of urine output, urine volume, and other drug interactions. Uh, so, uh, and then plus other organs like liver, kidney, liver, or heart, or a patient has received a radiological dye or not. You know, there are so many uh, factors that affect that uh, of sodium. So personally, I don't use it. And based on the urine examination, uh, physical exam, I think that's enough to make a determination.
0: Okay, yeah. I mean, you know, I think we often think about, or we were all taught in med school, right? Look at the to creatinine ratio. Look at the FENA, These will help you differentiate pre-renal from intra-renal. It sounds like from your perspective, it's way better to do an exam and figure out if, if they're, you know, if they're actually intravascularly volume down and then look at look at the urine in the microscope and that'll give you your answer stay with us we'll be right back all right and we're back and i was asking samir if it's just better in his opinion to just take a look under the microscope and not worry about fina and all that stuff
1: that's correct and our patients are much more different than when we were in medical school These pieces our patients have like Something like diabetes, heart problem, you know, liver problem, and it it gets the 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 fraction gets the modified, you
0: know. So, yeah. Yep. Now, for those of us who who don't know how to look at urine under a microscope, <laughs> it is that. So, what would you recommend? Do we just send a, a urinalysis and that'll give us the information we need, or do we ask our nephrology colleagues to look at it for us? You know, what's the way to do that so that you can get that information if you don't know yourself how to how to go look.
1: Oh, the best way to do is call us and uh, call the nephrology colleagues and we'll take a look at it. Otherwise, you do it, it may Indirectly, you have to interpret it what specific gravity is there a system in the urea or not. There's indirect ways to do that. At least that will help you, the RBCs in the urine or WBCs in the urine. But uh, for the multi brown cast, uh, the only thing is uh, either we can train the residents or uh, the, one of our fellows, or we can look, take a look at
0: it. Yeah. Okay. Great. Now, let's just say somebody's listening who's in a rural hospital or, in a, you know, doesn't have nephrology and they want to do it themselves. Is this something like, couldn't you figure it out pretty easily? I mean, could you just put some urine on a slide and put it under a microscope? And is it pretty easy to see?
1: It is easy. And as I said, I, I practice in uh, private practice. And when I went private, I mean, I went in deep Mississippi and there is only small microscope and centrifuge machine centrifuge for 2 minutes and uh, just put it on the slide and take a look at it. you don't need any special stains or anything no
0: okay Great. So people can try this. Certainly, you know, ideally learn it from someone who knows, <laughs> but it's... can give you some good information. Um, you know, I, I know my my father who trained uh, in, you know, medicine in the 70s, you know, always would bemoan the fact that when he was a trainee, you know, they did all their own. They looked at, they'd spun their own hematocrit and they looked at, you know, looked at all the urine and the blood and everything under the microscope themselves. And they there were microscopes right there on, on every floor. And this is how you did it. And now not only are, is it Hard, you know, their microscopes aren't there, but people don't even know how to do it. So it's good to know this is something maybe people could do.
1: Yes. And I think there are some, uh, it's in the works uh, in other big com- companies are trying to uh, have automatic machine that can spell out. You know, once you put the urine, they'll spit out the results. But that's for the future. Yeah. And it may okay. be to the surgical patients.
0: Great. All right. So we have this LASIK challenge as a way to prognosticate. Let's say you, You have a patient, rising creatinine, oliguric, you decide to do a Lasix challenge. Let's say you look at, you know, you you ask, you say to your nephrology friend, you know, can you take a look at this year? And they see a bunch of muddy brown casts. All right. So we feel like this is ATN. You say, all right, let's let's do a Lasix challenge. You give the Lasix. If they respond, as we said, that's good in two ways. One... You can get some volume off too. It's a good prognosis for recovery. Let's say they don't respond. So you give them the Lasix, big slug. Let's say you give 200 of Lasix and 10 of metolazone or 500 of Diurel, and they do not make any urine. All right. Now, in my mind, I'm thinking we better put in a Shiley and, and, and talk to our nephrologist, right? Um, is that right? I mean, if, that, if they fail that Lasix challenge, is it time to, to think about dialysis?
1: Uh, I would not uh, yet. Uh, and i think there was a good trials for crt uh, that looked at early versus late and, and people who they tried to do the dialysis sooner and compared to late ones the outcomes were similar and people who they waited some patients uh, with the natural recovery you know they, they pick they'll pick the creatinine and get better so wait for the indications uh, not wait too long but if you wait it you know, there was a Kiki studies that also showed that if you wait it out uh, until they have the re- traditional indications, then uh, they should do fine. It's just that the new concept is kidney demand versus capacity. You know, uh, what is the demand? They look like demand, so solid demand that can kidney handle versus uh, what is demand versus how much kidneys can, what is the demand in the body versus how much kidneys can handle? There's a onco-ICU, we go there sometimes, we go often, but there's a patient is getting making two liters of urine and the patient is getting six liters of fluid every day. That patient, I may dial as him tonight. Versus there's a patient in medical ICU, surgical ICU who is making like 600 cc of urine creatinine is going up to four and five. He could plan to and come down, so I could wait it out. It's a little bit of some of them are gray indications, but generally we wait for, in the last 20, 30 years, it hasn't changed. We'll just wait for a typical indication for dialysis. But if it is a Friday night, then you're yeah, sure we can uh, uh, plan to get a sily and so that we it doesn't, it doesn't we don't get into emergency situation. Yeah.
0: Right. Great. Okay. Yeah. I think that's really important. Um, you know, is we often maybe pull the, or at least we in the, in the ICU, we think, oh, we need to dialyze. And we often hear from you all. Well, not yet. Right. I mean, the volume status is okay. They're not about to get reintubated. Their potassium is fine. Their, you know, pH is fine. So just because they're not making urine and not responding to diuresis doesn't mean we have to dialyze them right away. Right. We can, we, some of those people will actually recover. And then, you know, dialysis is no small thing. We're putting a big line in the neck. There's complications possible from that. You know, the dialysis itself. There's a lot of reasons why it's not a, a no-risk uh, procedure. So if we don't have to do it, then waiting may be a good idea.
1: That's correct. And uh, I have to point out one more thing is that how much to wait. That's also like, uh, that was answered by AKG2, AKAKI. The AKI study and AKG2 they compared like uh, wait, but delayed. And then long delay, they compare those two patients also. If you wait too long also, it's not good. So somewhere in the middle, it's just a new curve, yeah.
0: Right, great, okay. Now, let me ask you about a, a different patient. Let's say you have a patient who, you know, let's say they had a big surgery, they got a lot of volume, maybe they had a little bit of post-op complications, and so they got some more volume. Now they're, you know, 15, 20 liters up, but they're okay. You know, they're making good urine, Um but not, not, not a lot of urine. They're, they're not, you know, their potassium's fine. Their, um, their acidosis is, is resolved. Their kidneys are working. And let's even say their creatinine is normal. Okay. But they're just not like every day, they're still accumulating a little more fluid and you give them some Lasix and they, they pee like crazy. Right. And it's, and it works perfectly. So my question, I've always wondered, why? Why does that patient with normal kidneys and, and not AKI, why do they need that Lasix to help them in that scenario?
1: I think, may, even though the creatinine may have been fine on the patients, that was subsets of patients in the FACT trial. I'm quoting F-A-C-T-T, FACT trial. That's, that's where they compared liberal versus conservative flare. Uh, your creatinine, although this patient doesn't have clinical AKI, but your creatinine is diluted. Even if the patient, two patients who is volumeing versus uh, the patient who you're talking about has 15 liters of fluid, even that patient's uh, creatinine 1 may have been really 1.5 or 2. So he, he is the type of patient who may have an AKI that's not manifested because of fluid overload, and that's one of the uh, patients that get missed. Uh, and... The, they have looked at subset of these kind of patients and uh, for, follow up on this patient. They have they have poor outcomes on this, patient, increased morbidity, increased hospital stay, and increased mortality, yeah.
0: Okay, so that patient probably does have an AKI. We just can't see it. And if we were, t- maybe if we were checking a different biomarker, we would see it.
1: Yeah, or you can, if you just add just the fluid that he got, you can still get to the, uh, you can correct the creatinine uh, you can diagnose without the biomarker also.
0: Okay, interesting. All right, so let's talk about do we have a treatment for AKI, or is it just a waiting game? We just have to wait and see if it gets better.
1: If it is ATN, it's just a waiting and supportive uh, supportive game. And Kedigo, that's one of the classification system we use that came out in 2012. I was talking about, they have a bundle called Kedigo Bundle, and they looked at uh, subs- the they followed those patients in the cardiothoracic ICU. Some patients they used catechol bundle, and remaining patients they used standard treatment. They have shown that decrease, somewhat uh, improved outcomes, not by a whole lot, because standard group also may have followed a little bit of catechol education, a good uh, sugar control, hemodynamic support. Those are the only things we can do, and medication dosing. That's that's what I like personally. Is dosing medications and uh, so that the same vancomycin doesn't get overdosed because of kidney excretion. It may not be vancomycin overdosed, but it's just that vancomycin didn't clear because the patient has uh, had an AKI. And uh, we all know that uh, if we have an insult on the kidney today, the rise in creatinine takes 48 to 72 hours to get manifested and the you know and during that time if the drug doesn't clear, so supportive treatment and diuresis volume management or diuresis no diuresis if the patient is fluid down give them fluid. I think that's a, that's the only thing we can do at this moment if they have AIN. Yeah.
0: Okay, and obviously if it's AIN, you know you figure out the offending drug, stop it. Uh, if it's you know what about steroids? Do you do steroids yeah. for AIN? Yeah. Okay, um, so there's treatment there. If it's pre renal, obviously then the answer is make them not pre-renal anymore. Um, yeah, if it's polyester- and I think
1: uh, we now, uh, internal medicine are catching up to surgeons. Here, I'll give you credit is like type of fluid that you want to give. Uh, I think we are more uh, heading towards more balanced uh, solutions compared to normal uh, saline. There are like four trials that came out recently with fluid to give. The first one is SMART are the ones who showed improved outcomes, improved kidney uh, recovery rates on these patients. And the last one that came out basically did not so much difference. But there is still some signal that balanced fluid is helpful to us, low chloride that causes uh, less uh, autonomic uh, changes in hemodynamic changes in the renal vasculature. So, plasma light or ringer selected. Ringer is no different than plasma light. So, yeah.
0: Yeah, great. Yeah. And, you know, I agree. I think with the exception maybe of people with traumatic brain injury, where there seemed to be a, a, a trend toward worse outcomes with with the balanced salt solutions, I think, you know, for the most part, we still use. LR or plasma light, um, over normal saline for those reasons you said. Um, if it's, if it's post-obstructive, you know, again, when we see post-obstructive, it's usually a kinked Foley or a clotted off Foley. Um, you know, obviously there are other possibilities, but that there's obviously treatment for that or, or fixing that. But really for the majority of this, which as you said, is going to be, um, ATN, it's supportive care, uh, making sure to avoid nephrotoxic medications, making sure to avoid hypovolemia and, you know, um, and hoping to avoid dialysis. And then of course, if it gets bad enough, uh, as you said, then the, the treatment is dialysis. When a patient needs to go on CRRT, continuous dialysis in the ICU, do you have any idea what percentage of people will get kidney function back versus what percent will, will never get it back?
1: That's one of the focus of my research when I was a fellow. And close to 60% of patients who had AKI, recovered on dialysis they recovered Uh, but there's some it's type of patients who what they had at the baseline people who had good uh, baseline creatinine did not have proteinuria and did not have heart failure the likelihood of improvement coming off dialysis is very high compared to patients who had baseline creatinine of GFR of less than 45 or they had like two grams of proteinuria and some heart failure those are patients who may not recover so when you are talking to the patients i think who, who who is the patient what is this based on characteristic it helps us to stratify which kind of patients is going to recover or which kind of patients is not going to recover
0: right is it true that the single biggest risk factor for post-op aki is pre-op uh chronic renal insufficiency
1: yes and there is a uh, there are some scoring systems that, that are available. It's mostly for cardiothoracic uh, surgeries. There is like the Meta score or the Hacker scores that are available that can risk prediction models that you can use it uh, and discuss with the patients. And when I was a fellow, we used to see them preoperatively also and then optimize their medications, stopping the metformin, optimizing the statins or beta blockers. You can optimize them preoperatively also, even if they have baseline and then, uh risk certify and take care of them accordingly
0: yeah okay great um let me ask you this came up a little bit before but you know we often one, one cause or or purported cause of of uh aki that we haven't talked about is contrast and so we hear this all the time you know we we will say oh we can't do you know we, we need to know if this patient has a pe but we can't do the ct because they have an aki and we don't want to box their kidneys right we hear this all the time Tell me about that because, you know, we're starting to hear from both the radiologists and some nephrologists that maybe that's in, in, in no longer the case.
1: That's correct. And that concept is uh, used to be called uh, renalism and R-E-N-A-L-I-S and renalism. And because of that, I think a lot of our patients, they may not have uh, gotten enough imaging studies that would have helped them to treat that. So there are subsets of patients who we want to avoid the contrast, like we have very advanced chronic kidney disease, proteinuria, bad diabetes, heart failure, if all possible. Otherwise, remaining patients, uh, we, can, uh, uh, it can, we can help them uh, preoperatively or pre-contrast, and then they, they should get contrast. And some of the studies that has been done recently, they looked at all the structural changes, biomarkers when they get a contrast. There is no signal on that. It was just a hemodynamic changes because of the contrast. That's number one. Number two is last 20 years, we have gotten better at our imaging studies also even with a small contrast volume we get excellent images so that's another way to reduce the, the contrast loading to the patient so yeah
0: yeah great so i think this is really important uh, that the concept of contrast induced kidney injury is You know, not what we think. It's really low likelihood, unless, as you said, someone's got severe chronic kidney injury, heart failure, proteinuria, you know, they're really not doing well, then maybe not a great idea. But certain, and even then, there are newer agents, right? Newer contrast agents that even for those patients, you can give, right?
1: Yeah. And then better machines, better CT scan devices, we can uh, do better imaging. And then at this point, I would like to make a distinction between contrast induced AKI and contrast associated AKI. Some patients may have like, who's a septic, acute patient or a surgical ICU with a bad pancreatitis or pancreatic uh, infection uh, had uh, on vancomycin aminoglycoside. And by the way, got a contrast. He could well have AKI, but it may not be contrast this AKI. It just may be contrast-associated AKI. So some distinctions to be made yeah.
0: Right. That's key, right? It's you. You can easily get a, an AKI around the time of getting contrast, but it may not be from the contrast, right? That's
1: correct, yeah.
0: Yeah, okay, I think that's really important. Um. All right, uh, Samira, this has been great. We've covered a lot of really great ground. Anything we didn't get to that you think is important you want to say before we move on?
1: Uh, I think the other thing is uh, the concept AKI, it's, uh, I think we. I'm glad we're talking about that. It's high time that everyone gets educated, especially the residents, and drug dosing. And it has got attraction a in the national uh, co- conferences, ACID, uh ASN and ISN. They have a AKI awareness year. That was last year, so that you know we can all of us can go and uh, try to prevent the AKI or se- uh, severity of the AKI. Each step of severity increases the morbidity and mortality to these patients. And there have been some initiatives that they have different institution has used. One of them I would like to point out in particular is NINJA initiative that most of the pediatric population where the pharmacist was alerted when the patient was getting three different nephrotoxic agents or three days of immunoglycoside that reduced the rate of AKI by 60%. So based on this, there are different electronic alerts that has been studied and are also in process of being studied. One thing is there, it's great we'll have an extra alert for AKI. But there will be a lot of fatigue also. So, you know, we have to balance it out how much alert to get. There's already sepsis alert, heart attack, brain alert. So uh, based on that, I think uh, at least we have to be mindful. Uh, and I think it has to be inserted to our clinical practice and how we can do that.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. And, you know, maybe we should just mention some of the worst offenders for of medications that cause kidney injury. So aminoglycosides for sure, right? Amphotericin is a big one, right? Yes. Uh, vancomycin can do it
1: vancomycin and non-steroidals and yeah
0: yep and said okay great other other big ones big offenders that come to mind or is, are those the main ones uh,
1: those are the main ones yeah
0: okay good so that's really important to keep in mind um and some all right of them
1: may, sorry
0: no go ahead Samir, please.
1: and and, and uh, I just want to point out some of the rise in creatinine may not be bad rise and there is an increasing concept about saying permissive hypercreatinemia and these are the ones type of patients who have heart failure and are fluid overloaded. You diurese them and the creatinine bumps up by a certain amount. And these are the patients who have done well. And there's some paradox there. So,
0: Yeah, that's really important, I think, to, to point out because, you know, for whatever reason, maybe it's because you're no longer diluting it, but the fact that the creatinine goes up may not be bad. And it certainly isn't because your diuresis is to blame, right? I mean, I always tell the residents, you know, cardiac surgery, almost every patient's creatinine goes down when they first come out of cardiac surgery because of the the bypass circuit and the dilution from the fluid. And then every, uh, not everyone, but a lot of patients will have an AKI after cardiac surgery. So their creatinine will go up in the day or two after. We also are diuresing them during that time because we diurese very quickly in post-cardiac surgery. And it happens a lot that somebody will say, you know, we better stop diuresing because the creatinine going up. And the, the fact of the matter is the creatinine is going up because they've got an AKI, not because we're diuresing them, right? And so we want to be very careful about blaming the diuresis for the, for the um, creatinine rise.
1: That's, it's just decongestion yeah.
0: Right, great. All right, um, Samir, let's turn to the part of our show where we make random recommendations. Is there anything, a TV show, a podcast, a movie, a book, uh, anything you would recommend that people check out for fun?
1: For fun. One of the things, uh, one of them is for, I, I'm from Nepal and I just want, I'm inspired by my uncle and he was a global citizen. Uh, there's a book called uh, Global Citizen from Gulmi, G L M I, and where he, there was no education system. He went to a remote, it was on a remote village. Even to get a passport, he had to get a permission from a big uh, minister in the country. And he, Landed up a job in UNICEF, and there's life history how he had to go to hard rows and uh, what kind of things around the world he did. I think that's uh, inspiring to me. The one funny is a documentary. Uh, one of the Nepalese uh, guy he went to 14 peaks in the world. It uh, more than 8,000 uh, fit uh, peaks in the world, and he recorded all these videos that he had adventurous scenarios. And it's pretty funny. It's in Netflix too. And the other book I like is uh, God of Small Things. Uh, it's by Arundhati Roy. It's just from India, and uh, she goes to uh, the childhood memories of two 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 children uh, who are underprivileged and a lower lower caste, and they got happiness on the smaller things. And I think it's pretty. Uh, people who are privileged do not realize. You can be happy even without the money, and in the lower, smaller toys, how they can have become happy, how they, they can get loves, and but at the same time, what are the social discrimination factors? I think this is also inspiring. God of small things.
0: Nice, that's great. Thanks for those recommendations. Um, I also have. Uh, I've seen Fourteen Peaks. It's a really great documentary. Yeah, really fascinating. Um, I'm going to recommend a TV show. I can't remember if I've ever recommended this before, but it is called. Um, never have i ever it's a uh i think it's netflix it's a um, i
1: watched it
0: yeah yeah did you it's funny right yeah and the it's half hour show so it's not an hour-long commitment it's funny it's um well done so if you're looking for something light and fun check out never have i ever and then we have an audience random recommendation um this is from nico Lowe. and nico i apologize if i'm pronouncing your last name incorrectly it's l-o-u-w from south africa who wrote in to say that he was inspired by the episodes that we've done with authors who've written novels and so he decided to write a short story uh, of his own that's now available on amazon at the moment for free um Um, it's got got a medical theme a short story with a medical theme that he wrote um and we will um uh, we will post a link to his short story uh, in the show notes if you want to check it out. Um, cool. Thanks, Nico, for sending that in. All right, Samir, thank you so much. This has been great. Thanks for coming on the show.
1: Thanks, Ed. Thanks for having you, and have a, good, have a good day.
0: All right. Hopefully you got as much out of that as I did. That was really fantastic. Let us know what you thought. Go to the website, akrak.com, where you can leave a comment. Others can learn from what you have to say. If you are a fan of the show you can follow us. We're on Twitter. We are on Facebook. We are on Reddit. And we are on Instagram. I'm at Jay Wolpaw on Twitter and we're at Akrak Podcast. And you can find us on all those other platforms as well. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. If you'd like to support the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash acrac, that's patreo ncom com slash a-c-c-r-a-c, where you can become a patron of the show, even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference and we really appreciate it. You can also make donations anytime by going to paypal.me slash acrac or looking up Walpaw on Venmo. Thank you so much to those who have already made donations and become patrons. We really appreciate it. Thanks, as always, to our fantastic ACRAC crew. Dr. Brian Park is our tech lead. Sonia Amanat and Chris Reese are our social media managers. Dr. April Liu and Edison Jang are our production assistants. Thank you so much for all that you do. Our original ACRAC music is by Dr. Dennis Kuo. You can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right. That is it for today. For the ACRAC podcast, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac burger, McNuggets or McCrispy sandwich, but you're the Fileo fish sandwich all day.